Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Father, we bless you that you are compassionate, you are gracious, you are slow to anger, you abound in loving kindness. Your word says that you'll not always strive with us, nor will you keep your anger forever. But we bless you that you've not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For you have said that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness towards those who revere you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Bless you, Holy Father, that just like a dad has compassion on his children, you, the living God, have had compassion on those who fear you. You know that our frame is but dust, and so we come as your children in obedience to the truth and command of Scripture to gather on the first day of each week. We thank you that we have the privilege to worship in both spirit and truth because of a birth from above and because of your inspired inerrant word that tells us what you are like. And so we humbly ask this morning for our nation that is in shambles, an increasingly divided people with different worldviews clashing. Oh God, you told us that these days would come that the last days would be characterized by perilous times. But whether Jesus comes next week or in a hundred years, we know it does not change our responsibility to be salt and light, so help us to be obedient. We pray for our president, that you would give him wisdom and strength, that it might be peaceable here in our nation, that we might have increasing freedom to share the gospel. As we open your word, we ask you to open our hearts to its truth, that the Spirit, our teacher, would give us ears to hear, and that we would be willing to obey. I pray for your help and your strength, and I thank you in advance for your filling in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's Word with you this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. Now, many of you are brand new to this church, either here or online, and you've already figured out that we teach from this book verse by verse by verse. And don't be afraid to mark up your Bible. You need to bring a Bible if you don't have one. If you don't have one, come to meet the pastor. We'll provide one for you. But you need to bring a Bible. This is not like, sadly, many churches where you don't need a Bible to worship. We teach right from the book, and don't be afraid to write in it. We'll help you to internalize Scripture. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who inspired the Bible. And you are holding in your hands this morning 66 books the only 66 that God ever inspired on the entire planet in all of human history. And God gave you these books not to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like His Son. Now, I am between the exposition of an entire book. We finished Revelation, then I did a 10-week series on the prophet Elijah. In the last three weeks, we've been discussing the subject of spiritual gifts. And one of the questions that has come up, and my, how many questions have come in from Switzerland, from South Africa, from Asia, in many places in the United States where people have been live streaming us. And one recurrent question 
is how do I identify my spiritual gift? I still don't know what it is. Well, number one, you might want to take the spiritual gifts course. But number two, what I am going to preach in the next three weeks is absolutely essential to the discovery of your gift. Because unless you grow, you'll never know what your spiritual gift is, how God has created you to serve His people. And so I want to begin this morning in Hebrews chapter 5. If you have a copy of God's Word, follow along. We will start in verse 11. Concerning Him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When I was a boy in our kitchen, my dad had on one of the door frames pencil marks where on occasion when he would give us haircuts, he gave us the haircuts. It was really pretty neat. He was an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon for 50 years, but I think he had a hidden joy of cutting hair. And uh, he would give us the haircuts, many times just a buzz in the 60s, easy to do, just shave it all off and give him a little butch in the front. But then he would have a stand next to the door, and he would mark our height. And occasionally say, hey, I grew an inch. And he would get all excited about our physical growth. Well, God does not have a chart, so to speak, where he marks off our spiritual growth. But I know from Scripture that God monitors our spiritual growth, and he gets excited when we grow in the spiritual realm. And the Bible speaks much about growing up in Christ. The Apostle Paul said this to the Corinthian church, there we are exhorted, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, but in your thinking be mature. In like manner, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in the fourth chapter, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried uh, about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ." Peter encourages us to grow when he writes, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk. And milk here is not in deference to meat, but the unadulterated, pure truth of God's Word. Like a newborn baby who longs for milk, we are to long for the pure milk of the Word. Why? So that we can grow in respect to our salvation. In 2 Peter, he likewise says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, the Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, John 1.12 says that God gives you the right, the authority, the exousia, the power to be what you were not before, a child of God. A spiritual birth from above makes you one of God's children. Before that, in a creative sense, you're a child of God, but in a spiritual sense, you must be born again to be deemed a child of God. But it also teaches that when you have a spiritual birthday, you become a baby Christian, just like in the physical realm. We're not born as adults, we're born as little babies. And so we need to grow. 
Some time ago, Dr. Billy Graham, when he was still alive, stated that in his opinion, 90 to 95% of the Christians in America who have truly experienced the birth from above have never grown. They've just stayed the topic this morning, perpetual infants. And because they never grow, they lack the joy, the vim, the vigor, the fruitfulness that God wants them to know. Some people listening to me today are no further along spiritually than you were five years ago. But it is God's desire, just as we mature physically, that we mature spiritually. And that's the burden of the book of Hebrews, to encourage baby Christians to grow up. Now, while that's a central theme of the entire book, I suppose nowhere more precisely is that topic addressed than in this section of the writer of the Hebrews. The epistle of the Hebrews, if you've read it, it's written to God's people to realize that they have entered into a new era, a new deal, a new diatheke, a new covenant, a new testament. We divide the Bible into two halves, the old covenant and the new covenant. The word covenant or testament, of course, are synonyms in the Bible. And so under the new covenant, we have an opportunity to grow and mature through a birth that no Old Testament saint could have ever dreamed of. And the wonderful news is that when Christ saves you, He avails Himself to you through the Helper, God the Holy Spirit, to equip you and to come alongside so that you, in the midst of trials and temptations, can find spiritual growth. Now, one aspect of growing in our relationship that chapter 4 covers is that we are to come boldly to a throne of grace that we might find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 5, he continues the theme of the superiority of our high priest over the old deal, over the old testament, that Christ is the great high priest, and we have direct access to the Father through the Son. And he continues that theme here at the end of chapter 5 on into chapter 6, because he is concerned over the spiritual state of the people to whom he is writing. God wants his children to grow up. And if you don't grow up, you can spend decades missing God's best and God's plan for your life. Now, you can see there in your note-taking outline, and if you're online, there's a place there. The person's monitoring the website and Facebook and other means will tell you how you can print out the outline. But you can see I've uh, divided our passage under two headings. The first heading deals with the problem of spiritual infancy, which he underscores in verses 11 to 13. And then when we come to verse 14, he'll turn a corner and he'll speak to the pathway to spiritual maturity. And so he gives us some very practical ways to get off the road of spiritual infancy. First, he reminds us that the spiritually immature are dull in their hearing. The fact that these new believers were stunted in their spiritual growth can be traced to three key problems. And the first is that the spiritually immature are dull in their hearing. Look at verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. Now, this verse may seem a little confusing if you don't look at it contextually. Concerning him, and of course, the natural question would be concerning whom? Of course, the him that he's referring to is Melchizedek that he has just mentioned in verse 6 and then again in verse 10. In verse 6, 
Uh, the Father, when referring to God the Son, quotes Psalm 110, and you will notice the capital letters there. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, and it is the number one most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Being uh, of his son, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 10, the writer again tells us that Christ is the one being designated by God as a high priest, how? According to the order of Melchizedek. And so the hymn here is this high priest named Melchizedek. Again, verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's saying, there's a lot I want to tell you and to explain to you about this man, Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain. This explains why the writer will wait until chapter 7 to go deeper on the topic of Melchizedek. It's not because he was not knowledgeable, but the problem was their spiritual state. It was hard for them to comprehend. It's not that the message was impossible to understand, that it was too complex, but it was hard for him to explain it because they were dull of hearing. It takes thought. It takes concentration. It takes a heart in their behalf to want to hear the deep, meaty truths that he wants to explain. And it would have been proper, again, for him to have compared Christ in this order according to Melchizedek, but right now he has to hold off because he wants to identify what it is that is keeping them from going further with the Lord. Why is it so hard for him to explain it? Well, again, it doesn't stem from the fact that the Bible is impossible to understand. There are certainly difficult passages throughout the Word of God that are challenging, but not impossible. The problem with them was they were infants, and you don't speak to an infant on the same level that you would speak to a child, a teenager, or even an adult. In their perpetual infancy, he tells us, is related to the fact that they were dull, dull in their hearing. You should circle that word dull in the text. It's made up from two Greek words, nothros, that literally means no push. These were Christians with no push. You could paraphrase it thick, slow, sluggish, idle, lazy. In fact, when you come down to verse 12, that same Greek word is translated sluggish. That you may not be sluggish in chapter 6 and verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. Uh, the word is used outside of the Bible in first century common Koine Greek of a, of a lion whose limbs were numb from disease. And so they were of no use. They had no push. The word is used in the Septuagint. Most of you see the references in the New Testament, LXX in the margin, meaning this is a quotation from the Greek translation instead of the Hebrew, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And throughout Proverbs, like in Proverbs 22:13, this same word is used to describe the sluggard. So God doesn't want us to be sluggish. He doesn't want us to have no push he wants us to be growing in our understanding of spiritual truth. So they couldn't understand, not because they didn't have the mental acuity to, to grasp it, but they were dull. They didn't have the ears in which to hear it. And it's sad because there are many people like that today. Sluggish people, sluggish Christians. Again, concerning him, we have much to say. 
and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Some of you teach professionally for a living. That's what God has called you to do in this life. Some of you are gifted by God at your spiritual birth to teach the body of Christ. In either case, you know there's a great difference between a classroom of students who have no interest in the material and those that are hungry to learn. And so a teacher's overall approach to the classroom is largely dependent sometimes on what the students are like. And if the students have an attitude, I could care less, kind of yawner students, that's what these people were. He wants to go into this deep explanation about the priesthood of Christ, about this guy named Melchizedek, a powerful, powerful king and priest of God that's described in the book of Genesis. I have a whole sermon just on him in our Genesis series. But he couldn't teach them these things because they were dull listeners. Now, we talk a lot today about dull preachers. Maybe we need to speak more about dull listeners, huh? Lost people, they have deaf ears. But saved people can have dull ears. When I speak in different churches from time to time, I don't like to be gone from the pulpit on Sunday, so most of the invitations I receive, I reject. But usually when I'm gone, I'm preaching somewhere. And when I do, I can tell you in a couple of minutes so much about that church and what it's like. I can tell you whether they are hungry for the things of God by two things. Number one, how they sing. When there's an enthusiasm in the singing, that usually is an indication of a well-taught church that has listened. But two, when you just get up to preach, are they clock watchers? Are they yawners? Are they sitting on the edge of their seat? Or are they dull listeners? And I've met some Christians who have sat under some of the finest Bible teachers for decades, but they are no more spiritually mature than someone who just met Christ six months ago. And what impresses me is when someone shares their testimony, and not so much, well, I've been saved for 40 or 50 years. I think what impresses me, because it impresses God, is how much have they grown in those 40 to 50 years? You might ask yourself, how much more am I like the Lord Jesus today than I was a year ago? How much more do I like spending time in the presence of the Lord than I did a year ago? God doesn't want you just to grow older. He wants you to grow up. I met a man recently who is live streaming our uh, basic discipleship course from another state. And he told me, he said, Pastor Carl, I can't wait to tune in. I'm learning so much. God is changing my life. I wish I had heard this material a long time ago. It was obvious that he was hungry for it. Now, I get it. Some of you can't come here on Wednesday nights. You have to work. Some of you have more critical, important uh, commitments that you need to complete on a Wednesday evening, though it's always available online, and you can listen to it at your leisure. But some of us have become so dull of hearing that we're not even consistent in our Sunday morning gathering with the people of God. Why? Because we yawn in the face of Almighty God, like His truth is somehow boring. And so that's what this man is dealing with. This is, by the way, what we call the orphan epistle. We don't know who wrote it. Now, there was one edition, only one publisher of the King James in the early part of the 19th century, and they wrote the epistle of Paul according to the Hebrews. No other King James publisher did that. But we know Paul didn't write it. We know that just from things within the book. 
but we don't know who wrote it. And it's really the only book in the New Testament whom we do not know for sure who the human author was and how appropriate because this book is on the excellency of the Lord Jesus and of his greatness. And it's like God wanted the human author just to fall into oblivion. But unfortunately, some of these people were, quote unquote, professional listeners. And we have people like that. They come and their eyes are open. They maybe even nod their head and say an occasional amen, but they're really not listening. I mean, the lights are on, but nobody's inside. That's what's going on here. Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say. It's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Notice the word become. The implication of that word is they weren't always that way. There was a time when they were once alert, when they were intensely interested. Listen, you don't start out dull. You become dull. It's a condition that is self-imposed. And immaturity in Scripture is often placed back on the listener, on the believer. Look, I know there are pastors who don't open the Word, and some of the people are starving. But God is bigger than whatever our circumstances are, especially in this day, where unlike first century Christians, we hold a printed copy of all 66 books of the Bible, and we have access to Bible teachers across the world. But if we have a take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude, we've become dull of hearing. And I fear, sadly, that the average Christian in America has become that way. Listen, if you come to church and five minutes into the sermon, you tune me out. You are dull of hearing. If you're looking for a church where, look, after 15 or 20 minutes, you're beginning to get antsy, you've become dull of hearing. You say, I've got my day and I've got my things to do. That's a dull listener. And when the sound of God's Word no longer stirs you and excites your heart, you've become dull of hearing. When your adult Bible fellowships, when we're able to meet, though some of them are doing it online, and you could really care less, you've become dull of hearing. When your quiet time is dull and you just do it to check off a box, you've become dull of hearing. So that's the first manifestation that these people were suffering from spiritual infancy. They were dull in their hearing. But there's a second characteristic brought out in verse 12, and that is the spiritually immature are delinquent. They are delinquent in their teaching. Look now at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Now, I think we need to take a moment to talk about what God meant when He said, by this time, you ought to become teachers, because the question invariably comes up, how do you put Hebrews 5, verse 12, together with James chapter 3 and verse 1? Let me read to you what James said. James wrote, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. James is speaking to my brethren, that is, those who name the name of Christ, born-again brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the obvious question is, how do you take this negative command, let not many of you become teachers, with this command from the writer to the Hebrews, where we are told that we're immature if we haven't become teachers, add to that what we've studied in the last several weeks on the subject of spiritual gifts, 
that God gives spiritual gifts as he chooses. And one of the gifts he gives is the gift of teaching. And another gift that he gives is the gift of pastor teacher. You will remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things. He's talking about spiritual gifts, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Four times in one way or another in the New Testament, God says he gives spiritual gifts to his people on the day they are born again as he chooses. In other words, you and I have nothing to do with it. God determines these grace gifts. He doses them out as he chooses so that there's balance and the needs in the body of Christ are met. And of course, Peter said, in reference to your spiritual gift, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So knowing, let not many of you become teachers, we know that he can't be referring to the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teacher, because if God has given you that gift, he chose you for that purpose, and he expects you to use that gift or whatever gift you have in serving the body of Christ as a steward. And above and beyond those who are gifted in this way and those who have the responsibility, there's the office of teaching, and that's really what James is dealing with, those who serve in the office of teaching. Some are called and gifted by God to earn their living through the ministry of teaching the Word. Now, let me say there's a difference between the responsibility and the office. The writer of the Hebrews is dealing with the responsibility. James 3, 1 is dealing with the office. Paul, like Peter, is dealing with the spiritual gift. Think your way through this. For instance, if someone is qualified to serve as an elder of the church, among other things, uh, Titus 1.9 says he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. That is, he's supposed to be able to take the Bible and relate it to life. Uh, the Scripture also says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2 that an elder must be able to teach. Again, that's the responsibility. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because of what God says in other passages, the best interpretive Scripture is Scripture itself. Jesus spoke of those who are in the office, those who teach for a living, that the worker is worthy of his support. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 4, 14, it should say. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Implication, not every elder is called to earn his living from the gospel. Not every elder is gifted to stand in a pulpit like this and to preach the word of God. But if he's an elder, he has the responsibility to be apt to teach, able to exhort in sound doctrine. Why? Because that's a mark of spiritual maturity. And so distinguish in your mind the given responsibility, the spiritual gift, and the office, because those are three distinct things in the New Testament. So James is saying, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why should we clamor to proclaim the word of God? When a young man says, I, I think maybe God's calling me to preach. It's wonderful when I hear that. 
but I want to encourage them to proceed carefully and slowly to make sure God has really called them to preach. Knowing that, James says, here's the reason, knowing that, as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. He's speaking of the future judgment that every Christian will face. It's called the Bemis seat of Christ, the reward seat of Christ. It's the judgment of the just. It's not the great white throne judgment where only unbelievers are present. The Bema seat of Christ takes place in heaven. And those who stand in a pulpit like this and teach the word of God, the scripture says, will incur a stricter judgment. Look, I spend a lot of time, usually no less than 24, uh, 25 hours before I step into this pulpit. I've been doing it for 40 years. Why do I take that so seriously? For the simple reason that I don't want to misrepresent God. I don't want to take some passage and say it means this when it doesn't. I don't want to misrepresent God's Word knowing that when I speak on behalf of the Lord and say, this is what the text says, knowing that I'm going to incur a stricter judgment. So there's coming a judgment, and it's not just for preachers, it's for everyone. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God for every born-again believer. We will stand, in essence, eyeball to eyeball with Christ. He will test the quality of our works, what sort it is, whether it be gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble, and when tested with fire, he will evaluate each and every work that we've done. So the judgment that James is talking about is not salvation, it's service. And of course, your service for Christ makes a difference, not only in the coming thousand-year reign of Christ, but throughout all of eternity, you are becoming for eternity by the way you are willing to serve the Lord today. So James is not contradicting the writer to the Hebrews. He is dealing with people whom he will say in chapter 6 who need to press on to maturity. Look again at Hebrews 5 and verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I have it underlined in my Bible four times over. It's the word you. And it's not you singular, it's the second person plural. That's one of the advantages of Old English and that they distinguish between the singular you and the plural you. This is the plural you. In other words, you could say y'all ought to be teachers. You all should have grown up by now. You all should have reached a point where you were sound enough in doctrine such that you could teach others as well. You see, as you mature in Christ, you learn to answer basic questions that people will ask you. And he had expected these people in that sense to become teachers, not formally as pastors, not to have had the gift of teaching because that's determined by God but this responsibility to carry it out. And by the way, as you've been with us in this series on spiritual gifts, we saw that there are 20 that are listed in the New Testament. And I suppose in a broad way, you could distinguish the gifts between the sign gifts and the serving gifts. In the sign gifts, there are four, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing and miracles. And my, I've had a slew of questions coming in somebody from Fiji, someone from a country in Africa I never heard of, someone from Switzerland and different places about 
tongues. And so I encourage you, if you have questions on that realm, again, to take the spiritual gifts course. But apart from those four sign gifts, there are 16 non-sign gifts. And what's so fascinating is with those 16 non-sign gifts, we all have a common responsibility. You may not have the gift of giving, but all of us are called to give a tithe. You may not have the gift of serving, but he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. You may not have the gift of mercy, but blessed are the merciful. You may not have the gift of hospitality, but we are called, as the writer will underscore in chapter 13, to show hospitality. You may not have the gift of discerning spirits, but this text will remind us that God wants us to grow enough so that we can discern the difference between good and evil. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but God has called all of us to do the work of an evangelist. And you may not have the gift of teaching, but God has called us all in some sense to be teachers. Why? Because it's an overflow of growing up in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that to me is a powerful argument among others for the temporary nature of the sign gifts in the New Testament. Now, here's the point. There's the gift of teaching, there's the office of teaching, but there's this responsibility that is seen as you mature in Jesus Christ. Dads and moms, if you are growing in Christ, if you have ears to hear, Unless you have spiritual wax, so to speak, in your ears, you ought to be able to take the truth of God's Word and just relate it to the different circumstances of life, where you're in some setting and you say, kids, hey, do you know what God says about this? And you teach the truth. Husbands, you ought to be able to do that with your wives. Paul in 1 Corinthians, it's kind of an interesting text, 1 Corinthians 14, 35, let me read it to you. He's speaking about wives, and he said, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, that will make some women bristle, (laughs) but understand contextually, he's not saying that you can't speak at all in church. It's a qualified silence. Because he's just said, you know, a woman could prophesy in church in terms of be a direct conduit of God where because the Bible was not complete, uh, she could in essence say, thus say the Lord. A woman should sing in church and so forth. What he's dealing with in this context is a woman who would interrupt the service, ask a question of the pastor, and Paul says, no, you ought to be silent because one, it was a violation potentially because of the way Greeks learned and the process of the church service was in terms of how it unfolded, it was potentially an opportunity for a woman to teach or exercise authority over the pastor, something God told her not to do. So go home and ask your husband, what does that verse assume? It assumes the man can answer the question. Very, very often when a woman calls and she has a spiritual question, the first question I ask her is, have you asked your husband? Now, if he's not a believer, I get that. But if he's a believer, I'll say, go home and ask your husband. Well, he doesn't know the answer. He better find out the answer. He's the spiritual leader and head of your home. You need to speak with him. He needs to get off his spiritual duff and get studying and learning the Scripture and start teaching the Word of God. That's our responsibility. So listen, There's a sense as you grow up in Christ 
that your ability to teach Scripture grows, even in an evangelistic sense. Remember what Peter said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. It's the Greek word apologia. So we speak of Christian apologetics. We're not saying, I'm sorry. We're saying, let me tell you why we believe what we believe. We are to be able to give a defense to everyone who asks for what we believe. And so your skill in being able to even defend the faith, not just for new Christians who have many of the same questions that unbelievers have, you know, they'll come and ask you, well, you know, someone challenged me the other day and they said, everything you believe is from the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible more than any other book? So not only will believers ask you, but unbelievers will ask you. And so there's in a sense, even in witnessing to the lost that you'll be able to give out. And some of us lack the zeal and life and growth because we never, ever give out. Listen, if you're what I call a sponge Christian, always soaking in and never giving out, your growth is going to stop. You're going to become saturated, and you are going to become dull of hearing. You have a responsibility. Jesus gave it in the Great Commission. Remember, it's given five times in the New Testament. And in Matthew 28, it's given in the presence of over 500 individuals, the Bible tells us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's part of the Great Commission. That's a command from the commander-in-chief. This is not an option. If you are born again, as you go, everywhere you go, you are to seek to win people to Jesus. And if they come to Jesus, you are to encourage them to take the first step to be baptized. And then you are to do everything in your power through other people or your own ability to teach them the whole counsel of Scripture. That's why I would say that teaching others is not only a byproduct of spiritual growth, it is also a means to spiritual growth. Because if you don't obey what you know, and this is a plain command from Scripture, you will stop growing. Listen, I cannot tell you how many, I I know it's in the thousands, thousands of times in the last 45 years where I was studying a text of Scripture that morning in my quiet time, and on that same day as someone asked me a question. You say, that's luck. That's not luck. That's providence. In other words, very often when you begin to give out to people, God ministers to you not just for yourself, but many times for other people. And the Word of God becomes alive and challenging and pulsating in your life. So not all Christians serve in the office of teaching, just a select few. Not all have the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teacher. That's more of a minority gift in the body of Christ. But every Christian has the responsibility such that the writer to the Hebrews can say, by this time, you, meaning all, ought to have been teachers. But instead, they had regressed into a second childhood. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time because of your exposure to the Word of God, you were able to share that with another person. I mean, just share, you know, that basic question. So let me tell you, I'm not an expert, but let me tell you what the Scripture says about that. When was the last time you were able to take some passage of Scripture and relate it to your children or possibly your grandchildren? 
Listen, if you can't remember the last time, then you have regressed. You have gone back. You have backslid into a second childhood. Now, it's one thing to be that way if you're a brand new Christian. So there's an assumption by the writer to the Hebrews that some of these, belie- that these believers as a whole would be able to help the new believers. It's one thing if you're a brand new believer, but I want to tell you, even if you're a new believer and you're six months old in the Lord and you understand some basic truths, God is going to begin to grow you as you teach and help others. So there's a third manifestation I want you to see of spiritual infancy. Number one, they were dull in their hearing. Number two, they were delinquent in their teaching. Number three, the spiritually immature are deficient in their diet. They're deficient in their diet. Again, look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. What a graphic picture God gives us. Can you imagine us having a church picnic or a potluck and people are drinking nothing but milk? I mean, the elderly, the middle-aged, the the teenagers, the children, the infants, we all got a baby bottle up to our mouth. People would conclude we're either some weird cult or that we have a gross misunderstanding of a good sound diet and what it looks like. But listen, there are congregations of people that are drinking out of the baby bottle week after week after week. They should have moved beyond the elementary principles of God's Word. You see that phrase, the elementary principles? It's a Greek phrase that literally means principles, the first ones. And it's used in reference to language outside of the Bible. It referred to the letters of the alphabet that form the parts of words. That's why you've heard me say, I paraphrase this, they're still on the ABCs. They've never progressed. They they haven't been able to form words and put sentences together. They're just dealing with the elementary principles of the Word of God. And if you read chapters 7 through 10, you see a display of how they did this, that they went back to temple worship. They went back to the shadows And so you see their dullness of hearing in their washings, their gifts, their offerings, their laying on of hands, all that foreshadowed and pictured Christ that were completed in him, and they went back to the basics, uh, back to the shadows of the Old Testament. Why? Well, among other reasons, to escape persecution. They needed now to learn the elementary principles all over again. They should have been on solid food by now, but they were just on milk. Now understand, that's what he is defining here as milk, as the ABCs, the first principles, the elementary principles where no one ever graduates beyond that. Now milk is important. You never outgrow milk. I was in Houston about 40 years ago, and I was a missionary at the time with a Christian organization, and I went into uh, my friend's father's house, Jack Pledger's father. He was in his 70s, and man, this guy was in incredible shape. And and, uh, he said, Carl, every day I have a glass of milk. And he poured it in front of me and drank down that milk. He said, you should have a glass of milk every day. And I do. I have a glass of milk every day. I thought if I look that good at 78 because I'm drinking milk, I'm going to drink it. In either case, in the spiritual realm... While milk is used sometimes, like in First Peter, like a newborn babe were to long for the pure milk, that's not indifference to meat. That's a description of the purity 
and the unadulterated truths of Scripture, but in another sense, we are to graduate past milk, past pablum, and to put our teeth into a good T-bone. Listen, as a pastor, in every sermon, I need to give milk and I need to give meat. I need to feed the person who's been a Christian a week, and I need to feed the believer who's been growing for 30 years. And if you as an older Christian get arrogant and proud and say, I don't need this, I've heard this before, give me something deeper, that tells me you're dull of hearing. It tells me you are regressing back to a bottle. It tells me how out of touch you are in dealing with new believers because obviously you're not sharing your faith and interacting with the kinds of questions that they have. Sometimes someone will come in for counsel, and, they'll, and I'll give them the counsel, and they say, Pastor, I, I know this. You know, I, I don't know why I wasn't applying it. It's like, it's so basic. It's, yes, of course, what you're saying is true. What happened? Something that was once clear became fuzzy. They had digressed spiritually, and so... What was now vague and fuzzy was once clear and lucid. Sometimes people will come in and they're in for marriage counseling or one problem after another and say it's marriage counseling. And I'll say, well, well, let me just ask you a question. Tell me about your personal quiet time. Tell me about the time that you spend with the Lord. Uh, tell me about your personal prayer time. You know, sometimes we call it a prayer closet, that sacred place where we can shut out the world and, and no one can see but your heavenly Father. Tell me about your personal prayer time with the Lord. And more often than not, they'll say, well, you know, I used to have a consistent quiet time. Or sometimes I do it, but I'm not really getting anything out of it, and I'm you know, just kind of checking off the box, and it's short. Or prayer, well, my wife and I, we used to do that together, and we don't really do it anymore. And what happened? They digressed. What was once clear and lucid has now become vague and foggy, and fuzzy. So he is saying that here. And the saddest thing is when, when someone digresses. Look, it, it, it is sad when a child, say, never grows up physically. We had a precious family here years ago, and they had a little boy, and the boy wasn't expected to live longer than four years, and he grew until he was nine, but they moved him around in a baby stroller all nine years. And sadly, I did his funeral. And that's sad when you don't grow physically. And it's sad when you meet an adult who has some brain deficiency and can never grow mentally. But it's really sad when you don't grow up spiritually. You have come to need milk and not solid food. An infant doesn't come to need milk. As soon as he's born, he's hungry. He wants to nurse. The only one who comes to need milk is someone who's gone back into childhood. And these people, like many today, due to dullness of hearing, had become sluggish, and they had lost their spiritual appetite for the things of God, backslid into a second childhood. Do you realize this can happen? Lest we guard our hearts and our minds, it can happen. You can become, in the spiritual realm, anorexic, maybe even bulimic. It's okay to drink milk but you need to move past milk. Now, because these people did not grasp the significance of the Melchizedekian priesthood as related to Christ, look what he says carefully in verse 13. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. You see those two words, not accustomed? It's one word in the Greek New Testament. It literally means without trial. Those who take milk only have never graduated to solid food or they've regressed back to it. Why? Because they've not put on trial. They've not tested the word of righteousness. They've not applied the exhortation that they have heard. They've not put into shoe leather the plain commands of Scripture. These people to whom the writer of the Hebrews is describing have become the way they've become because of a lack of application. And that will either keep you an infant or Christ or cause you to digress in your spiritual walk. One of the blessings of pastoring a church like this is people come here hungry. People want to learn the Word of God. They're not interested in a 10-minute sermon. They sit typically for an hour, and if you come for the second service, you get the best sermon because I cut nothing out. And sometimes I go an hour and 15 minutes. And it's exciting, but, you know, in some churches, you got to entertain people. It's like a child, you know, when we were feeding our kids growing up and occasionally even with our grandkids, you know, you give them something that they don't necessarily like, so you kind of make it a game, and you get the beats, and you get the spoon, and, zzz, and you fly it like an airplane, and then you boom in the mouth, and sometimes, of course, they blast it right back out at you. As I thought about it, there's a lot of churches like that. I was preaching in Chicago some time back, and... The Sunday morning service, and, and so I thought, well, I'm going to go to this big church that I've heard about, and they have this Saturday night service and see what it's like, since I can't go on Sunday morning. And they had this jazz band, none of it was Christian music, and then they had all these skits and dramas and entertainments, and people were laughing. And then the pastor got up and gave a, basically a 20-minute sermon, and it was nothing but padlum and milk. And I thought, this is really sad. And I thought, I wonder if this is typical. You never judge a church by one sermon. By the way, you go, you're looking for a church, go at least three or four times, generally speaking, unless you know it's just outright heresy. So in this large church, they had their own restaurant. So I sat down in the restaurant with a whole table of people, and most of the people at the table had been there for a long time, 10 years or longer. I said, let me ask you a question. Why is it that the elder board is 50% women and 50% men in light of 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, where it teaches that a woman is not to fill the office of pastor? And then a couple of them got reactionary. A couple looked at me with cross eyes like, what are you talking about? And I realized I was speaking to a table of infants. And so all across America, we have congregations that are on their baby bottle, they're eating padlum, and the pastor is trying to keep them entertained and interested with his flying spoon. Here are these people, they're dull in their hearing, they're delinquent in their hearing, in their teaching, but they're deficient in their diet. And that's why they have not moved on and really why they regress. Now, fortunately, he doesn't stop there. He gives us some very practical ways in which they can grow. And so you can see the second point there on the outline is the pathway to spiritual maturity. The pathway to spiritual maturity. And so he's going to affirm three characteristics that marks the Christian who's on the pathway to growth. Notice how verse 14 begins, but solid food is for the mature. 
I mean, the first characteristic just falls off the page of Scripture. The spiritually mature ingest solid food. They ingest solid food. Now, milk is nothing more than pre-digested food. A cow has chewed up the grass, gone through a series of stomachs, and, and it's suited for infants because they don't have teeth. They don't have teeth that they can bite into something solid. They can't enjoy meat. Why? Because solid food is for the mature. And so the contrast here between verse 13 and verse 14 is just, it's plain, it's simple. The one who only continues to feed on the ABCs, the elementary truths, is not going to mature. One of our marine couples who moved to another city, he called me and he said, Pastor Carl, we're going to this church and you know, we checked out the doctrinal statement. It seems solid. And I went online. He said, yeah, good doctrinal statement. He said, but they don't teach the Bible. It's not exegetical. The pastor the whole time tells stories, mostly about himself, gives all these illustrations, baptizes a couple verses here and there, but there's no depth to it. He said, what should we do? I said, look, you've got you know, three young children in your home. You have just a slice of time to raise them up. And before you know it, those three kids in grammar school are going to be 18, and they're going to be off to college. And it's not that you won't continue to have a ministry in their lives, but it begins to drastically change. You as being the primary one building into their lives day after day after day will change. So I said, you really have one of three options. I said, have you gone to, we've gone to every church in the area, but there is one that's like 45 minutes away that we really like. And the pastor teaches the Bible. I said, that's option one. You might want to drive 45 minutes. Like we've got some people who drive an hour to come to church here. And they sometimes go by dozens and dozens and dozens of church, churches, because there's nothing. This, by the way, is what God said would happen at the end of time in the last of the last days that there would indeed be this uh, spiritual uh, lack of basic truth. I said, option number two is, I said, join that church. Find the best, if this is the best Bible-believing church, you join it. Pray for the pastor, support the pastor, and be a self-feeder. We have people who every week, they tell me they live stream the first service, and then they go to their 11 o'clock hour for their in live with other people. That's okay. Not to mention, there's all kinds of opportunities today on the internet and, and through Christian websites where you can find solid Bible teachers where you can learn and, and grow on your own. I said the third option is get some other like-minded Christians together and pray and Maybe start a New Testament church and then call a pastor who believes in the necessity to expound the Word of God. Preach the Word. That's what Paul tells Timothy. His last will and testament, preach the Word. God's people need to hear the Word of God because it's food. And so those are your three options. I said one option you don't have, and that's to do nothing. And there are people who call me and they say, well, I'm not really a member of a New Testament church, but I live stream with you. I said, I'm so glad you live stream with me, but you need to become a member of a Bible-believing church where you can use your spiritual gifts and employ it in serving the people of God. But you see, babies, they're totally dependent on someone to hold the bottle. And if you aren't learning to pick up the food and put it in your mouth yourself, 
just means you're not growing. So number one, people who are on the pathway to maturity ingest solid food. Secondly, the spiritually mature implement God's truth. Look again now at verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice, circle that word practice, because of practice they have trained their senses. He's talking about the exercise and obedience and the implementation of what God has shown you. Uh, my son, Grant, a Marine, and he also owns these, uh, these gyms, uh, called me one day and he asked me about, texted me one day and asked me about if I knew what sarcopenia was. I said, well, I, I know the Greek word sarx means flesh and penia means poverty. So I guess it means flesh weakness. I said, what does it mean? What's your point? And most of us here have sarcopenia if you're 30 or over. You say it sounds frightening. <laughs> well, uh, it's that process of aging. We're beginning in your 30s, typically. You begin to lose 3 to 5% of your muscle mass. And as you get into each decade, especially most when they get into their 60s and 70s, they can lose even 10 to 15% of their muscle mass. And he was saying, but you know, there's things that we can do. And, and of course, we're out there in California, and he introduced me to this 78-year-old cardiologist, and his physical therapist said there was nothing really he could do. And, and my son convinced him, no, you need to get under the barbells. And here was this guy, 78 years old, who was a lot stronger than I was, and it was convicting. So he gave me this book called Starting Strength. Now, it talks about all the exercise methods, and, but all the instructions in that book will do me absolutely no good if I never get underneath the barbell. See, that's what he's talking about here. The mature because of practice. They are taking what they are learning and they are applying it. If all the truth you learn week after week just stays in your head and your life never changes, you'll remain an infant or you will regress. I mean, if you've lost your passion to hear and apply God's word, you're a regressing Christian. If you worry the same way today like you did five years ago, you're not growing. If you blow your cork all the time and you're not seeing God change you, you're not growing. If there's no more fruit in your life today than there was a year ago, you're not growing. And you're not growing either because you're not taking in ingesting solid food or you're not applying that which you are ingesting. And so God wants us to get a spiritual workout. So mature and maturing believers ingest solid food they implement God's truth, but also the spiritually mature identify good from evil. They identify good from evil. Look again here. Let's read all of verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That word to discern, diacresis, literally means to divide. In other words, they have the ability to divide good from evil. And as we grow in our knowledge of, word, of the Word of God and then begin to apply what we know, we develop spiritual discernment. Yes, some have that spiritual gift, but it's a responsibility we have as we grow up in Christ. The Scripture says here they have trained. 
They have trained their senses to discern good and evil. You see that word trained? It's the word gymnazo. We get our word gymnasium directly from the Greek. They've gymnasticized their senses through spiritual exercise, through the application of Scripture to tell the difference between good and evil. Now, it's characteristic of little children to lack discernment. They'll put just about anything into their mouths. And the questions I get, I got 10 that came in just this week. I can't even begin to answer them all. But some of the questions that come in just show me how, how much lack of discernment there is. What do you think about this guy? I said, what do I think about him? He's a wacko. He's not even a believer. But they listen to him because he's entertaining. Uh, a college student called me via the Bible line and she said, I'm a student at the University of Georgia, and they're offering a course called Building Your Own Theology. And of course, there are campus ministries on every campus, and one ministry is the Unitarian Universalists. We have such churches in our own county. They believe a lot about nothing, sadly. And in either case, um, she said, I'm really confused. This was five years ago, because this doctor dismantled the doctrine of the Trinity. I said, well, number one, that's the nature of Unitarianism, uni one. They affirm the oneness of God, but they deny His triunity. Well, now you can go online this afternoon, and you can see the same course that's being taught on college campuses across America where they have a representative, and in their churches across America, building your own theology. You don't want to build your own theology. You want to learn what God's theology is from Scripture. So let me read to you some of the topics that they're offering college students. They're studying such thing as gender fluidity and in their churches, safe sex, transgenderism, homosexuality, social justice, critical race theory, earth-centered spirituality, calm abiding meditation. Now, if this young lady had just even been a little bit discerning, she would have known that Dr. Gumballs wasn't worth listening to. Why? Because Paul says a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot appraise them because they're spiritually discerned or appraised. Critical race theory, oh, I better embrace that. You know, all these evangelicals, let's embrace critical race theory. They'll think I'm a racist. Critical race theory has nothing to do with racism. Social justice, oh yeah, we got to embrace social justice. God, it has nothing to do with biblical justice. But that's what the devil does. He packages things in a way that make it sweet and tasteful, but are far from the truth. And we have these lost liberal lying preachers who are reading the Bible and remember, it's God's love letter to his people. The lost man can't even begin to understand it apart from the plan of salvation. And many have rejected that, and so their minds have become depraved and reprobate. Let me share some applications as we close. This is the first of three sermons, so I want you to come back for the next two Sundays. They're very important. Number one, ask yourself the question, do I have ears to hear God's truth? Do I have ears to hear God's truth. Now, we find in this passage some very clear delineations between an immature believer and a mature believer. A mature Christian is not someone who has arrived 
because they recognize that none of us arrive until Jesus comes back, and in the twinkling of an eye, we are translated, and our sin nature is gone, and we become like Christ. But if you ever get so prideful where you think you've come to the point where you've arrived, you're digressing. No, the spiritual Christian recognizes that he is to have a grown-up and a growing relationship with Christ. And so he or she is the person who ingests solid food, and he implements what he is learning, and he's able to identify between good and evil. And look, this is incredibly practical. Do I have ears to hear? You see, you can physically hear a sermon, but not hear it at all. He who has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. So how do I know if I'm really maturing? Well, number one, there'll be an appetite for more of God's truth. There's a hunger for the Scripture to spend time with God, not just corporately, but alone. You will know that you are growing if you're coming to the point where you're beginning to teach whether it's your children and grandchildren, your most important disciples, if we just did that right, the evangelical church would be drastically different. Not to mention other people in the church. We have people all the time who are finding Christ as their Lord. And ask yourself, am I becoming cleaner and cleaner in a world that is becoming filthier and filthier? There's a tsunami of filth that is blanketing not just our nation, but our world. And it's what God said would happen at the end of time. What are those things doing to you? Are they overrunning you and overtaking you? Are you becoming more like Christ? And so if this morning as you do some self-examination and you realize you're a babe or you've regressed into spiritual infancy, then ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you on the basis of the blood of the cross and to give you once again ears to hear. Second question this morning, do I know God better today than I did a year ago? Do I know God better today than I did a year ago? I hope you understand, again, there's a direct correlation between your obedience and your spiritual growth. The reason some of us have not grown like we have or we've digressed is because we've stopped obeying what we know. God shows you something specifically that He wants you to stop or He wants you to do, and you say, I won't do it. You'll digress. I don't care how well-stocked a library you have. I don't care how many thousands of sermons you have listened to. You will remain or digress into a spiritual pygmy if you do not apply what you know. By the way, there's a parallel passage in the epistle to James. The apostle James writes these words, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's easy for a Christian to become self-deluded. We think because we've heard a message preached and we've built our stock of knowledge that we're changed. Again, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
It's possible for it to go through the physical ears, but not through the heart. And so he gives us some very practical instruction, as we will see in the succeeding weeks from other chapters in Hebrews. The same instruction. Before you can really seed in, you've got to weed out. And so James says, you're to put aside all filthiness. Let me give you three words. Remove. The first word is the word remove. Remove all filthiness. Put it aside. And the word filthiness is an interesting word. It's a, it's a word that's used to describe wax in the ear. A very similar kind of picture. And some of us, our spiritual ears were plugged. We hear a sermon like this, and we go home, and we watch filth at night. And you're listening to some of the music that pagans listen to is no different. You go on some of these chat rooms and some of these internet sites, and you're curious, and you wonder why you're not growing. Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. The first word is remove. The second word is the word receive. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save. And most of you know there are three aspects to salvation. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. That's the sense of the word here. He's talking about so that you can grow in respect to your soul. In humility, receive the word so that you can be sanctified in this process of becoming more like Christ. And so when you hear the Bible, you ought to listen to it with your name written all over it. One of our brothers back there, Anthony, thank you for nearly 30 years. He just retired. 30 years serving as a deputy, protecting us. We need men like that and Jeremiah and police officers we have throughout this congregation. But he came up to me, yes. He comes up to me almost every week, and he just says it out of habit because he means it. He said, Pastor, that sermon was just for me. And we have too many vicarious sermon listeners. They're listening to critique, to cut down, to rip up for someone else. I wish so-and-so were here today. What does God want to say to you? Does God want to teach you? And some almost mentally with folded arms, I dare you to teach me something. In humility, if it's God's word, I don't care who the messenger is. If it's God's word, then you should receive it in humility. The third word is respond. And again, we'll see these three expressions as we continue this series from Hebrews. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you ever want to grow, you must obey what you know. And as you obey what you know, you just grow. Listen to this promise that Jesus gave us. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. I thought God loved everybody. He does in a broad sense. But in an experiential sense, it's the born-again believer who's keeping the commands of Scripture that God, in a fresh, ongoing, progressive way, discloses Himself to you. It's an incredible promise that God Himself will disclose Himself to you. And the more you obey, the more you know of Him, and the more you know of Him, the more you love Him, and the more you want to obey Him all the more. It's an incredible process. Third and final question, have you ever been born? You say, that's a stupid question, preacher. 
I'm sitting here, can't you see me? I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm speaking about a spiritual birth. Jesus taught before you can ever, ever, ever begin to grow spiritually, you must be born again, both to see, comprehend, and to enter the kingdom of God. And there are many people who have a false assurance of salvation. They know the plan of salvation. They've never met the man of salvation. And so their life has never changed. And others who don't even know what the plan of salvation is, and they're trying to grow and please God, you cannot grow until you're born from above. And you cannot be born from above where the Spirit of God comes to inhabit you and make you a new creation until your sin is forgiven. And your sin can never be forgiven until you own it for what it is. Yes, transgenderism, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, drunkenness, lying, self-righteousness, and on and on and on we can go. It's all sin. It's evil. And until you own your sin and put your faith where God puts your sin, you will never, ever be forgiven, and you will never see the inside of heaven, and you will go through this life physically alive but spiritually dead. You say, well, pastor, this is interesting, but I'm not interested in that today. God says today is the day of salvation. He wants you to be saved today, and you can be saved today because salvation is not earned. It is a gift that is humbly received. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that you save us to make us like your Son. You said that you work all things together for our good, for those whom you predestined, you called, and those whom you called, you have set upon us the goal to make us more like Jesus Christ. May we never miss that. And Father, wherever we may be in this journey today, some who are without assurance of salvation because they've never admitted to you that they're not good enough, that you view them as morally bankrupt, and they've never ceased trying to save themselves where they've called upon Jesus for salvation. Help someone today, Father, wherever they may be, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. By your death and resurrection, save me and change me. But for others, Father, they have done that. But they have either remained babes in Christ or they've regressed. And if that's true of us today, may we repent of it. For you are worthy of our obedience. You are not worthy of half-hearted devotion. But you are worthy of a full heart to love you with all our heart, mind, strength. Help someone today, Father, to make that decision. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.